0: Well, good morning. What a wonderful morning it is to honor our God and to be together here at Eastside. To do that, I look out and see a good many gathered and several visitors with us. We're so happy that you can be here to engage in these uh, actions of worship as we glorify our God and demonstrate our love to him. And that's really what it's all about. So thankful for the stirring songs that we've engaged in together, for the wonderful prayer that Tim led us in, and to remember our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and what he did for us, and to call that to mind through uh, the Lord's Supper is just a privilege every first day of the week. So thank you for being here to engage in these things with us and to encourage us in our faith and to honor the God of heaven. As we look into our lesson this morning, our title is, But God. Okay, so here's two words that are found many times in Scripture going to be examining several of those today. There are, are two very common conjunctions in the English language. Uh, there are seven basic ones, I understand, but there are two very common ones, and that is "and and "but." Now as far as conjunctions, you know, "and" just uh, says a little something else besides what was already said, or uh, gives you additional information that you can put together to form the whole. But but is a whole different kind of conjunction, okay? But is something else. What it's going to do is, is it's going to often change what was first said to such an extent that it may even negate it. And so, so but is contrary, isn't it? It's maybe in some sense contrary to what was first said or first perceived. But is always of the contrary opinion. It adds additional information, but it also changes the information or the impression that you got from the first phrase. So it qualifies, it alters, and not infrequently, it completely negates that which was just said. So for instance, you ever been in a meeting or have a conversation with somebody, you're talking about uh, maybe something that could be done, and, and somebody says, that's a good idea, but... And by the time they get finished saying what they're going to say after the but, all of a sudden, it wasn't such a good idea anymore, right? (laughs) It completely changed that. When we talk about, but God. We get impressions about things. We have ideas about things. Of a spiritual nature. Sometimes it's what we want to do. Sometimes it's what's actually going on in reality around us concerning our Trials and tribulations and problems that we're having. Sometimes it's about our own spiritual well-being and our salvation. And we have a concept of what reality is about those things. But God. But God changes the reality of those things. And things both great and small, as we go through Scripture, we'll notice In our lesson this morning, we look at this. We're looking at God changing, redirecting our affections, our desires, and our perspective at times. We have family attachments, whom we love, love dearly, and we think sometimes that this is how I want to behave toward them, or this is what they deserve. Or whatever it might be. But God often tells us something different than what we think we ought to be doing regarding our family. And sometimes, frankly, it's not necessarily what we want to do regarding our family. It may, uh, call us to be more responsible in our role in the family as a husband, a wife, or a, a parent, a child. You know, we have our ideas about what we're supposed to be doing, but God says something else. It may have to do with what's good for someone that we're close to spiritually. We have an idea of what would be good for them, but God says something different. In the book of Genesis chapter 21, Abraham did not want to send Hagar and Ishmael away. I'm sure you remember the story. Uh, Abraham and Sarah had had their son of promise. Isaac and Ishmael had made fun of him when he was just a baby, and Sarah says, get him out of here. Send him away. This is not not going to happen. Genesis 21 and verse 9. Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's son, because his son. You understand that, right? Ishmael is his son. He he doesn't want to kick him out of the house. He has an attachment to his son. He loves his son. This can't be a good thing to do in Abraham's eyes. But God. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad, or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. Now there are a number of things in this passage that might catch your attention. First of all, the women are all looking at this and saying, Right, Abraham, you need to listen to your wife. Okay? So that that seems to be what God is saying here. What what I want to point out is that, that God is really altering Abraham's thought about what he needed to do for Ishmael and Hagar as far as that goes. And what God wanted Abraham to do and would have Abraham to do in this case was not at all what Abraham's natural affection, if you will, was prompting him to do. May I tell you this morning, my friends, that that is often the case in families. That what a family member needs in the eyes of God may not be what our first impulse is to give them. Whether it be discipline or rebuke or not allowing an evil influence in their lives. We know this was especially difficult for Abraham. But what Abraham didn't know, of course, and what we don't realize, of course, so often, is God's got a big plan here. He's got His overarching will and His overarching purpose for our lives. And sometimes our family affections don't really correspond with that. The fact that Abraham does, in fact, show Hagar and Ishmael the road becomes an amazing lesson of God's grace who brings her back and sees her situation, it shows us how graceful God is. But also, of course, it's used in the New Testament as an illustration of the difference between law and grace. Hagar represents the law. Right? The children of her are in bondage. But the children of Abraham and Sarah are in grace. And Paul brings out that contrast in the book of Galatians and uses it to illustrate something very, very important. Abraham didn't know any of that was coming. And so it is sometimes with our families. What we need to do is what God said. Even when it may not seem like the thing, but God said, but God said. Let's do what God said. You might remember in in the book of Ezra, The captives had come back from captivity and were inhabiting now the land. But there was a problem among them, a couple of problems. One of them was that many of them had taken pagan wives, married foreign women, which they were not supposed to do under the law. And so Ezra rebukes the people and and says you can't have these foreigners. God does not allow this under under the Old Testament law. And so they all make a, a covenant to put away these foreign, law, these foreign wives that they've taken. And some of them, it says in Ezra chapter 10 and verse 44, after it lists a bunch of the people who had taken these foreign wives, it says all these had taken pagan wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. We have people in marriages today that God does not condone. Not for the reason that you find in Ezra, but for other reasons that Jesus gives us in the New Testament. And when you're doing something that God doesn't want you to do, you need to stop doing that. And it may require that a person give up a family that they're not entitled to because they're living in adultery. They say, well, I I love this wife. I I love my my children. And, And we're happy, and we all have the right to be happy, right? Well, that's what the Declaration of Independence says. But God. But what has God said? What has God said we're supposed to be doing? Matthew chapter 10 and verse 37 here's what Jesus said. He said, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, yes, I know I'm starting with a really hard saying. I understand as far as preaching goes, you're not supposed to do that. But this is one of the more difficult but God situations to accept. We'll find a couple more, but we'll find someone, some that are very, very helpful to us and encouraging to us. A second one I want to think about with you is we may have things we want to accomplish in God's service, but God may have better ideas. King David wanted to build a temple to God that was in his heart. In fact, he says in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 2, King David arose to his feet. He said, Hear me, my brethren, my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark, for the covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations to build it. But God. Here's what I do. And it was good hearted wasn't it? David had the best of intentions. I want to build a house for God. He needs a, you know, We need to do this for him. But God said to me. You shall not build a house for my name. Because you have been a man of war. And have shed blood. Now David does get the plans for the temple. For the house of God. But, of course, Solomon builds it. Here's a great lesson for us as well. Sometimes people have things in their hearts to do for God that God may not want them to do. They they may feel this impetus, well, I have this talent or this ability or this desire, and here's where I'm headed with that, and I want to accomplish this for God. I'm doing this for God's glory. But that may not be what God wants done for His glory. Right now we've got, right here this morning, not here, but in the world, (laughs) we've got places of worship that have uh, dance teams and rock and roll bands and all sorts of things using their talents to the glory of God because that's what they want to do. But Is that what God wants them to do? Somebody says, well, I I just want to use my talent to the glory of God. You can probably do that in some way, but just not any old way you choose. Because God has said how he wants to be served and approached and worshipped. We sometimes don't know why bad things have happened to us. In fact, a lot of times we don't. And when we do, it's usually because we've done something to deserve them. <laughs> so, you know, the ones you don't know about are the ones you just can't figure out what I've done to deserve this. But most of the other ones, you, you know what you did to deserve it. Everybody has these experiences. The classic example of someone who went through a lot of difficulty in his life, and I'm sure wondered from time to time, why in the world is this happening, is, is Joseph. Now Joseph had some bad things happen to him that he probably kind of deserved. His his brothers didn't like him, uh, and there might have been some reason for that coming from Joseph's (laughs) actions and attitude toward his brothers. But in any case, he's sold into Egyptian slavery. He winds up in the house of Potiphar. He winds up in jail. Lots of trials and tribulations along the way, as we know the story. At the end of it all, when his brothers come down to Egypt, He reveals himself finally to them in Genesis chapter 45 and verse 7. And he says to them, God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth, to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, the lord of all his house, and the ruler of all the land of Egypt. Joseph understood that all of these bad things that happened to him we were all in line, aligned by God to bring Joseph to a place where a lot of people could be saved. And Joseph had to go through those difficulties to be where God could use him in the way that God wanted to use him. That's going to be true in your life more times than you know, where things are going to happen, difficult things along a long road. But ultimately, God may use you in a way that you can't even imagine. Later on, he has this discussion with his brothers again because his brothers really don't think he's okay with them. And they bring it to his attention in Genesis 50 and verse 20. They talk about all of it. And Joseph says, As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. There's our word, right? There's our phrase. But God... You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In the previous passage, it wasn't you who sent me here, but God. What is God allowing in our lives? What trials and tribulations and tragedies have we endured? We don't always know the reason why. We don't always know how that's going to work to good, but God does. And God gives us the assurance of that in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, of course. And Paul says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So instead of focusing on the bad that has happened, we must trust that God is bringing good from it in some way, maybe that we cannot see or may never see, but we trust God. But God is to be trusted. All of us endure stress, trials, and tribulations in life. Uh, And the stress sometimes becomes unbearable to us. It's not just the thing that we're going through. It's our emotional state that results from the thing that we're going through. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. Maybe it's some sickness. Maybe it's a trial at work of some kind. But we're under so much stress, maybe we can't even hardly sleep at night. Many of us have experienced those days and those nights. The Apostle Paul had that experience a lot of times in his life, I think. He was certainly under a lot of stress, as we call it today. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and verse 5. He says to the Corinthians, Indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, for we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. So he's, he's got all this trouble. He's got all this emotional upheaval inside of him. All of these concerns. And yet the next word, it's not but, in the New King James Version, it's nevertheless. <laughs> nevertheless, God. The ESV has, but God. But God, nevertheless God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us, by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Here's here's a man who had all kinds of troubles. One of his concerns was what was going on with the Corinthians. Paul had a reason to be concerned. You may recall, there were a lot of Issues in the church at Corinth related to their faith and faithfulness. You may also recall that Paul had written to them a blistering letter, 1 Corinthians, the epistle of 1 Corinthians. And now he's kind of wondering, well, how are things going on there? (laughs) You know, have the sins been straightened up? Have have y'all received what I wrote? How's everybody doing? And so he's greatly concerned. He's comforted when he gets news. Titus comes. Titus tells him they're doing well. Not only that, but they are uh, doing what God wants them to do. And they had zeal for Paul. God brings comfort to us in a lot of ways. Every moment he's with us. Every moment he's holding our hands. And just to know that is comforting. There are things we go through and we'll be in emotional upheaval for some long time at times. We'll see in a minute that just God being with us should help us. But God comforts us, but God. But God comforts us in a lot of ways. And if we'll just look for those ways and accept those ways. The, The death of a loved one. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's it's a parent, a brother, a sister, a wife, or a husband, or a child. If you love somebody and they pass on, it can be excruciating emotionally. Just so hard. Something is said when Jacob is dying and he's talking to Joseph. And he says to him, Genesis 48 and 21, says to Joseph, behold, I am dying. But God will be with you. God will be with you. There are a lot of other ways that God can bring us comfort. But just his presence with us is the greatest comfort of all. To know that he is with us. And that's what Jacob wanted Joseph to know. God will be with you. The enemy, as we talked about last Sunday morning, may be great. May seem like they're going to just sweep us completely away and defeat us entirely. But as King Jehoshaphat learned and knew when God was with him, he couldn't lose. You remember what Jehaziel, the prophet, said to him as Judah was facing the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Edomites. And he says to him, Listen, all you of Judah, you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, but God's. The battle belongs to the Lord. 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 15. God changes our thinking. He redirects our affections and our desires and our perspective about so many things. Just when we allow him to enter the picture and give us the information that we need to deal with the situation. To improve ourselves, if necessary. To alter our perspective. The Apostle Peter, I have I have no doubt that Peter thought, thought he understood the Great Commission. He thought he did. Probably thought he did when Jesus gave it to him. We've been reading, if you're reading along, a lot of us are reading the... Yearly Bible reading here at Eastside, and uh, read through first part of the Book of Acts the last couple of weeks, and I was impressed as as we went through the reading of how all the way through the Lord just is is broadening out the the people that are being brought into the kingdom. You know, it starts with the Jews from every nation under heaven on the day of Pentecost, but then then before you know it, you have somebody who's um, a proselyte from Antioch, not a born Jew, but a proselyte from Antioch, who becomes one of the seven in Acts chapter 6. Remember that? And, and then you have Philip going to the Samaritans of all people. And then you have Philip going to an Ethiopian eunuch who had been up to the temple to worship but could not have been a full Jew. He was an Ethiopian eunuch. And then you have Peter, who had been one of the ones, by the way, to go to Samaria and preach in Acts chapter 8. And Peter is on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner by the sea in Joppa when he gets this message from Caesarea and from God. And the message from God was, you remember, the unclean animals let down in a sheet, and a voice that says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, Oh no. Oh no. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And God says, God is cleansed. Don't call it unclean. Well, the guys come to the door, of the gate, Simon the Tanner's house, are of course from Cornelius, a Gentile, a full-blown Gentile, a Roman soldier. And Peter goes with them to the house of Cornelius. And he comes in and he asks, well, why did you call me? Why am I here? And Cornelius basically says, well, we're all gathered here because God said to send you and you'd preach words to us. And so then Peter says to them, you know how unlawful it is, Acts ten twenty eight, for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God, told me, but God, told me, that I am not any man, common or unclean. But God, told me, that it took a while for Peter to get that. I think it still takes a while for people to get that today. I think that all of us have prejudices. That all of us have a viewpoint of humanity. And that most all of us need to come to the same realization that Peter did. That you have not met a man. And you will never meet a human being. That doesn't have an eternal soul. And need the gospel of Jesus Christ. But God. Takes away our prejudice. But God. We live our lives. We have temptations. Weaknesses. The enemies may seem to be strong. Our, te- our temptations are not as great as we think they are. And the reason is that God is faithful to provide a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except as such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Don't tell me, don't tell me that you can't bear it. Don't tell me that you have to give in to it. No, you don't. Why do I know that? But God. God is faithful. However strong it may seem to you, you, however much it's got a hold of you, however addicted you are to it, however great of a habit it has become, how much you think it's a part of your nature, but but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able to bear, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape. Let's look for the way of escape. Let's strive to get out of it. Let's truly repent in our hearts and follow through in our actions. We don't know how to go in this life. Sometimes we don't think we have strength for the day to day. The psalmist felt the same. Psalm 73 in verse 24. He says though that you will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you and there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail. My flesh and my heart fail. My my flesh and my heart fail too. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God will hold your hand. God will be with you. And you can do it. Because God is with you. Don't be afraid of enemies who are proud. Lift themselves up. Whether we're talking political, social, spiritual, family, work, whatever the aspect of your life is. The psalmist says in Psalm 75 and verse 4, I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. A horn represents power. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. God is the judge. He puts down and exalts another. But God is the judge. Whoever you're facing, whatever you're facing, God decides who's exalted. The last thing I want to consider just for a few minutes, and I guess the most important of all, is how God alters our perception of the possibility of salvation. You might remember in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus had just had a discussion with his apostles about who could be saved. Jesus had explained to the people that it's really hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. and the disciples want to know who then can be saved. And Jesus says, "With men this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. There are some people you know you look at and you think, That guy has no chance. He he will never, he will never be able to have his sins washed away, to correct his attitude, to be right with God. But with God, all things are possible. Here's why I know that. Christ was dead, but God raised him up. This again, is something we find in our readings in the book of Acts over and over and over again. The the principal fact that the apostles and other evangelists are, are continually harping on in their sermons in Acts is that Christ died according to the Scriptures, but He rose again according to the power of God. And so Paul makes that point. Other evangelists do too in Acts. Acts 13, verse 29. He says about... Jesus' death when they fulfilled all that was written concerning Him. They took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a tomb. But God raised Him from the dead. But God raised Him from the dead. Jesus was, was dead. He was comp- no half dead. No just swooning. No just fainting away. Jesus was dead. His sighed and put out the blood and water that confirmed it as it was lanced by a spear. He was dead. And he was put in the ground, in the tomb. Everybody, Everybody knew he was dead. But God raised him. We were dead. Every last one of us of accountable age, we were dead. But if we're Christians this morning, we're alive. Here's the beautiful thing that Paul says in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Look over there with me if you're following in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, You He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you also walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom you also once walked, we also once walked, according and conducted ourselves, I should say, in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If God could raise Jesus from the dead, He can raise your life from the deadness of sin. From the power of the grave. And give you life everlasting. But God. Death was not the end for Jesus. And your deadness in your sins, even this morning, must doesn't have to be the end for you. Because God can make you alive. You may think that that can't be. But with God, it can. And it does not matter this morning who you are, how far you've fallen, how horrible you've lived, how much you've turned away from all that God has done for you. God can give you spiritual life. when we were still without strength, Christ died for us. But God demonstrates His own love for us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 and verse 8 starts with a but God. This morning you may be a Christian, yet you may think that you are inadequate to serve in the kingdom. That you don't have the talents that some others do that you don't have the abilities that others do to serve God in an acceptable way. Apostle Paul wants us to know, even though we we think we're inadequate, that God has chosen us. I've said this before. and I'm not adequate, okay? I got it. I'm not adequate. (laughs) You don't have to tell me that appreciate those who point out my uh, mistakes and errors. You have a lot to work with there. Thank you. Uh, just keep on doing that. But I'm not adequate. None of us is. But God. Paul says, You see your calling, brethren. Not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. The base things of the world which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. You can do Whatever God calls you to do, whatever God asks you to do through His Word, you can do it because of God. Not because of you. It's really not about us. It's really about Him. God changes reality. My reality is, was, I'm not adequate. But God. Used me anyway. But use you anyway. Two words, but God. These words, as we've seen this morning, give hope to the hopeless. They bring calm to the trembling. They change darkness to light. They make the worthless priceless. And they replace death with life everlasting. But God. We're talking about the one whom the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11 works all things according to the counsel of his will. The all powerful. The almighty. The one who changes reality because he makes reality. The one who is true and shares truth with us. Here's the God we serve. Here's the God who's calling you this morning calling you into His kingdom. We're going to sing a song in a moment. If you're living in sin, you think all hope is lost, but God can save your soul right here, right now. If you'll respond to the Gospel, confess the name of His Son, and give your life to Him, being baptized in water for the remission of your sins. But God can change your life. Please come while we stand, and while we sing.